is not a single mainstream institution in the United States today, not a single law firm, not a single bank, not an inve- not a single investment bank, not a single newspaper, not a single cable TV station, not a single network news station, not a single university, not a single foundation, not a single big tech company that is not twisting itself into knots to try to find, hire, and promote as many blacks as possible. Uh, There is not a medical school that is not extending massive racial preferences to admit as many remotely qualified black applicants as possible. Again, there is no college graduating senior who is black, who is applying to medical school and is putting his race down as white because he believes that there's white privilege and that being black is a handicap. People come up to me all the time now about white males with perfect scores on their standardized medical admissions test, which is known in the United States as the MCATs. They have near perfect, if not perfect MCAT scores. They are being rejected across the board by medical schools because they are white. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Asher and with me is Ricky Allpark. Ricky, how is it? I was going to say hanging. (laughs) Does that sound appropriate? No, not really. Not really. <laughs> it's not appropriate. <laughs> it's, it's hanging well. Is that is well? That a good it's, answer? Don't, don't answer it. Don't answer okay, it. Okay. Okay. Well, John, does your workplace have black people in top positions? Um. Well, it's kind of you and me. So uh, either you're doing whiteface or I am. Well, we're, we're in a tough position here. One of us has got to go, right? We've got to make room here, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we well, can't have, there can't be three of us. There's got to be. So, who, no, so who that'd goes? Be, that'd be weird. I don't know. I think you should go. But I, I, if I told you <laughs> two years ago, and I'm not even, don't stop joking. I'm not joking around now. Okay, if I okay. told you two years ago that when, whatever you were doing, that, that Heather McDonald would be, talking to you and listening to your, to your words and saying your name back to you and stuff, what, what would you say to me? I'd say, what have you been smoking? <laughs> well, correct, because I can't believe, I, I cannot believe Heather McDonald's on the I show. I know. Well, when, when we started this podcast, uh, she, was, she was on the top of my list. I'm like, you know, if, if we ever got big enough, if we ever got successful enough or, or whatever, like, like I'd love to talk to, to Heather. Yeah, I, 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 I'm just, I'm blown away. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, and it, and it was everything I wanted it to be. Yes, so, yeah. listen, dear listener, you, you're just, you're going to love this. Heather McDonald, incredible mind, a, a woman of great humor, uh, a, a, you know, intelligent is, isn't even the right word, you know, mm. just, but, but, yeah. but a lover of art. Yes. Well, that, that's, that's what I love. We got to talk a lot about something that's dear to my heart, and that's classical music. I know. Just flip through some of these newspapers and blogs. Where's the art? No yeah. one's talking about it. It's, like it, it's, like, it's, it's like it didn't happen. <laughs> now, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now, on with the show. Heather McDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. She is a recipient of the 2005 Bradley Prize. McDonald's work at City Journal has canvassed a range of topics, including higher education, immigration, policing, and racial profiling, homelessness and homeless advocacy, criminal justice reform, and race relations. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The New Republic, and The New Criterion. Her books include The Burden of Bad Ideas, are cops racist, the war on cops, and most recently, when race trumps merit, how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. Heather, welcome to the New Flesh. It's an honor to be with you, Ricky and John. Thank you so much for having me on. So Heather, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show. When we first started this podcast, you were the guest on the top of my list to interview. I'm a big classical music fan, so I hope we can talk a lot about that today. 
I, I think the first time I heard about you was when I saw a talk that you gave at Hillsdale College, and this was via YouTube, uh, where you gave a hilarious account of some of the instances of college students trying to prevent you from giving campus talks. Uh, no doubt they're still trying to silence you, but but I'd like to know how you've avoided cancellation when so many other ac- academics are now lying dead on the battlefield, metaphorically speaking. Well, I don't take any credit for that. I'm not an academic, although I certainly aspired to for most all of my college career and long after. I can think of no greater privilege than being allowed to curate these great works of Western civilization. But the university kind of moved away from me, and I realized that I had been wasting my time on a very sterile academic theory. So I'm not in that environment. I'm I'm brought in uh, by semi- uh, conservative professors that are too scared to take on the college rabble themselves. And so they bring in these outside speakers who get the arrows thrown into them and they hobble off off campus again. Uh, and the professors can go back with their head into the sand and, and uh, you know, allowing the the hyenas of these narcissist, ignorant students to run the show. So it's a lot easier to survive outside of the university than inside the university. If I were a professor right now, uh, I would definitely be facing a hard time speaking the truth about America's racial disparities. So it's like you're, it's like you're, you're, you're a mercenary. You're like SEAL team, a solo SEAL team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I'm, I, I would otherwise disapprove of, of a female being on a SEAL team. I, I do not think we should have any, any thought of... Uh, gender neutral special combat units but in this case I'm, I'm happy to be an honorary member so heather you write so eloquently and passionately about classical music in in your book uh, we before we dive into the problems surrounding the art form in the 21st century perhaps you could just give us your thoughts on why you think classical music is is the pinnacle of, of human artistic achievement well you know that's not a claim i actually make but it's true i i do you're absolutely right you've read between the lines uh and this is very difficult. We live in a relativistic age, and we're not supposed to say that somebody's authentic relationship to contemporary pablum of pop music, which just gets less and less interesting and, and more and more generic, uh, can be negatively compared to Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. And, and I'm speaking from a lifetime of experience with this music. I grew up uh, learning how to play the piano. My father played the piano much, much better than I did. He played jazz in law school and in the Navy, uh, but his passion was Chopin above all. Uh, and I had the great privilege of being taken as a child to Sunday matinees at the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in downtown LA, a place that is now uh, completely overrun by the squalor of vagrancy. Uh, vagrancy. Uh, so I grew up listening to classical music on the radio. Uh, and my father's playing. He, he was he could play the Schumann Piano Concerto. I could not in a billion years think of playing the Schumann Piano Concerto. Um, so it's in my ear. And I understand that for people now growing up, it is a very, very alien idiom. It is not present in the culture. It sounds a feat. It sounds archaic. Although I I do not understand how somebody listening, say, to Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerti, the second and the first, cannot be, even without any previous exposure, just blown out by the power of that erotic force and the just Niagara Falls type uh, kinetic energy that is coming at you. Uh, so... But I can say from inside this tradition, having learned to understand the range of human experience that is being expressed through a medium of, I would say, unparalleled complexity that was allowed by the fact that the Western music tradition, unique among Western, among world musical traditions, developed notation early on. That system of notation allowed for very complicated developments in, in, in harmony, uh, in melody, that it contains depths of human feeling 
that I don't think are present in other traditions. And I love the American songbook. I think it is of a par really with with Schubert and and Mozart and its melodic gifts and the sophistication of the songwriting of the lyrics is beyond belief. I love the big band song sound. I grew up with acid rock in the 60s. So I'm not I'm not ignorant of these, but I do come back again and again to the sorrow, the the terrifying erotic longing of Brahms piano music. I just heard on the radio the final movement of Brahms' first piano concerto. I, I tend now to shield myself from the canon because I know it too well, and I don't want it to be completely turned into over-familiarity. So I, I tend to turn off the music that I know immediately when I hear it, but for some reason I, I stayed with this. I'm sorry. Your listeners should go now, right now, and listen to the third movement of the Brahms first piano concerto, and then listen to the whole thing, and then listen to the second piano concerto. If you can survive that exposure of one man's erotic sensibilities and sorrows and not be moved to the very fundament of your being, you're missing out. And you should start cultivating your ears so that you can interpret that. So that's all I have to say. I mean, and Chopin, the Schubert song cycles, these are all works and and the terrors of the Bach St. Matthew's Passion, which I mentioned before, that will bring you to tears with the cathartic experience. I know that I'm speaking from within a tradition, but I, I can just tell you I'm not alone. Uh, some of the greatest minds have felt that this is an expression of humanity at its most eloquent and sweeping. Well, that's one way of putting it, Heather. Another way of putting it is perhaps it's just white supremacy uh, <laughs> is what I was thinking. So, What was I missing? Of course I should. I mean, it is absolutely hilarious. This is, this is okay. So, John and Ricky, you're absolutely right. This is what's going on in our world today. And it is a discourse that most appallingly is being furthered by the very people who should be curating this tradition, by the, the, the head of the League of the American Symphony Orchestras in the United States, by, by the head of the Metropolitan Opera, by the head of, of classical music orchestras that are going around beating their chests and apologizing for presiding over a racist tradition on the ground simply that it was European and thus by definition demographically white. I mean, there was no getting around it. Sorry, guys, there were not 13% black uh, composers in the Renaissance to be giving us motets and madrigals and, and masses. It was impossible, physically impossible, to have a diverse Western classical tradition. But the worst is the classical music press who are presiding over, an, over a tradition that is dying every moment. It is receding on an absolute terrifyingly fast rate from our culture. And they are going around apologizing for being part of a, of a, a blindingly white tradition as the New Yorker classical music critic Alex Ross apologized in his post-Floyd, George Floyd vomiting forth. Uh, and, and the most preposterous thing, as you say, John, that it's all white supremacy, the claim here is that what is interesting and relevant and uniting between Alessandro Scarlatti, a Baroque composer, and Gustav Mahler, a late Romantic composer, who are composing in idioms that are almost dis almost like completely in a Venn diagram similar, but there is a long tradition there of, of fascinating conversation, but they are very different traditions, very different sounds at this point that what's interesting and relevant about them is that they're both white. I mean, this is so reductive. And yet the BBC, the, the BBC magazine, which again is one of our important curators of this tradition, after the George Floyd, during the George Floyd mass psychosis, was going around saying what was relevant about Beethoven is that he's white with, with big hair and wrote 32 piano sonnets, but the main thing is he's white. The 
the know nothingness that has taken over this this tradition is beyond belief. Well, when I listen to a piece of classical music, let's say let's say on the radio, like I might get in my car and it might the piece might already be playing, you know, and I and I might not know who the composer is. I can enjoy the work regardless of whether the composer is white, black, male, or female. So, you know, I wonder about the motivations of people who are calling for more exposure of works from black composers and women who are no longer alive. What, you know, what what does their race or sex add to our enjoyment of the music outside of perhaps a trivial interest in 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 who who was behind it? Yeah, I mean, I'm of mixed minds here because on the one hand, I am uh, very frustrated by the restriction of what most people listen to in classical music, which is a narrow canon. It's you know, a hundred great works that get repeated ad nauseum, and I, I can't take it anymore. I mean, I to me, the greatest opera is Don Giovanni. I will not go listen to it. I can't. I, I'm I'm honest enough to cop to diminishing returns. No, no classical music performer or conductor will because their livelihoods depend on playing uh, the same piano concerti and violin concerti and symphonies again and again and again. And I don't see how they do it. It's terrifying and 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 disheartening to me. So I'm all for new repertoire. So. Uh, but it is not the case, by and large, that the black and female composers, and above all else, the wonderfully intersectional composers, which is Florence Price par excellence, who's who's half black and female. Uh, I'm all for hearing them just because it's it's new repertoire. But the reason that we haven't heard that much of them up to now, although there have been some black composers who have been in the repertoire forever, like William Grant Still. Uh, and certainly Scott Joplin, is not because of racism and sexism. It's because of two overwhelming reasons. One, they were writing in too traditional an idiom, uh, and the the classical music world had been taken over by the academic uh, 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 straitjacket of atonalism and 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 serial serialism, uh, and and they were these these black and female composers, black female composers that are being exhumed now were still writing in a relatively traditional idiom. But the other reason is that they were pretty mediocre and they simply did not bear comparison with the greatest works of this Western tradition. And yet now I'm all for hearing them and I will go out of my way. I I have most recently to go hear yet another Florence Price work, which they get more and more mediocre. The more the more of them I hear, with the exception of a piano work, they're they're mediocre. What I object to is the rhetoric around them, which is so fraudulent. It is claiming that these are works of on a par with Antonin Dvorak uh, or or Mahler, which is preposterous. Our our curators, our connoisseurs, have an obligation of truth and connoisseurship which is to keep things in perspective and tell listeners, okay, you're here to hear Florence Price on a purely race identitarian ground. And when everybody goes nuts in applause after the latest Florence Price chestnut that's been dug out, it's only for racial grounds. It has nothing to do with musical grounds. And it's frankly condescending. I mean, it's like clapping for, the dog who's walking on its legs because he can do it. No, that is not the reason to clap. The reason to clap is if you really like this music and they're being presented, these works are being presented as the equivalent of of Beethoven. And that is an outright lie on the part of Alex Ross of The New Yorker and other classical music critics who know better and who are lying to their public. So in your book, you write a lot about lowering standards uh, in re- in regards to a, a few different things, university admission or uh, admission to uh, or being accepted into uh, an orchestra or, or or who's chosen to to write a concerto or a piece, or there's there's so many different ways you can apply it. But but more broadly, how does a push for diversity lead to this lowering of of standards? Well, that's the perfect way to to phrase it, John. It leads to a lowering of standards because you can have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. And that's the sad reality that Americans insist on turning their eyes away from. Uh, This is not how a white supremacist country behaves. But the, the fact of the matter is 
that we have very large academic skills gaps in this country. Uh, and those skills gaps make it impossible to be both diverse and meritocratic. And I'll give you the actual numbers. And, and again, when I tell this to conservative audiences, uh, people flinch. And I've, I've gone around, I've started giving trigger warnings saying this is going to make you very uncomfortable. Again, let us just note that if we were a white supremacist country, nobody would feel any discomfort in hearing the following facts. Uh, black 12th graders, 12th grade in, in the United States is the final year of secondary school before a student goes on to college. So these are uh, students that are age, I don't know, 17 and 18. 66% uh, of, black, of black 12th graders in the United States do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills defined as being able to do arithmetic or read a graph. So 66% of black 12th graders do not even partially have even partial mastery of arithmetic. The number of black 12th graders nationally who are proficient in 12th grade math skills is 8%. And the number of black 12th graders who are advanced in 12th grade math skills is so low that it doesn't even show up statistically in a national sample. Reading is not much better. The percentage of black 12th graders who do not possess even partial mastery of 12th grade math skills is 50%. 6% of black 12th graders are college ready when you take into account science, math, and reading, 6%. And so again, these are the numbers that explain why we do not have 13% black representation in a cancer research lab, 13% being the population numbers of blacks nationally, uh, or why we don't have 13% black computer scientists or nanotechnologists working in our big tech firms like Google or in small tech AI startups. But right now, the state of play of discourse, of racial discourse in the United States, uh, Ricky and John, is that all you need to do to, to, to take down any meritocratic institution is to point out that it does not have 13% blacks in it, and that by definition, the only allowable explanation for that lack of 13% representation is racism. End of story. Any racial disparity in America today is prima facie evidence of racism, and you are not allowed to talk about the academic skills gap, gaps that prevent diversity and meritocracy at the same time in meritocratic institutions, and in the case of the criminal law system, uh, our, our incarceration system, there you have the problem is overrepresentation of blacks. There again, the only allowable explanation for that overrepresentation is criminal justice racism, is police racism. What you are not allowed to talk about in the United States is blacks' rates of criminal offending. Maybe if we apply that to the, the classical music situation, pr professional orchestras around the world seem to be tying themselves in knots trying to find more more black and brown players. And, and, and most orchestras have some sort of diversity officer on the payroll. Uh, there's even calls to end the practice of blind auditions. Can you maybe give us some stats on the percentages of mi minority players in professional orchestras and then, then maybe tell us a bit about the attack on, on blind auditions? Right. Well, let's note who doesn't count as diverse uh, Asians in, in the major orchestras of the United States now. The string sections look to me to be eyeballing at least 50% Asian and very heavily female as well. But after the George Floyd ma mass psychosis, all these orchestras beat their chests and woe is me, we're racist, racist, racist. We don't have 13% black string players. Um, notwithstanding the fact that there are very few American major orchestras and regional orchestras that have not had scholarship programs, outreach programs, uh, mentoring programs since the 1960s 
trying to persuade uh, more black students to take up classical music training, which is highly disciplined, takes an enormous amount of focus on the part of both students and and family. I, you told me, Ricky, before we started that your son's now learning to play the violin and you know the battles you have with him to get him to, to practice. And that has to be, you know, uh, Emmanuel Axe said to me, the uh, American pianist now in his probably in his 70s or 80s, but you're not going to end up uh, in the string section of the New York Philharmonic unless you have, you know, been fanatically practicing since age five uh, every single year of your life. Um, so this is something that does take commitment, discipline, and devotion. Uh, but the, the groups that are putting in that commitment, discipline, and, and devotion, they are being welcomed with open arms. And every conductor I know would love to have more black players. He is not discriminating against black players. And to the contrary, the tradition now in, in many American orchestras is for auditions to various orchestral seats to be blind. That means they're held beneath this behind a screen so that there can be no nepotism. There can be no favoritism of this is, you know, somebody I went to school with, no sexism, no racism, no, no matter what. Uh, and so now we have, this is just classic. Here's the, the, the sleight of hand that's going on universally in the United States. Now guys, uh, Procedures, selection procedures that by definition cannot be racist because they're automatic, they're computer generated, or they're, it's impossible to know the identity. If they have a disparate impact, they are racist. We don't have to explain why, but they are racist. And so that's true for, you know, red light cameras. Red light cameras do not know who they're, who they're fingering for speeding a red light, running a red light. If it turns out that blacks get caught by red light cameras at higher rates than whites, which is true, then the cameras are racist. It's a racist technology, even though the technology has no idea what the race of the driver is. Similarly, if blind auditions do not result in proportional representation, then blind auditions are racist and we should lift the screen and hire on the basis of race. Now, you know, the, it's simply there's not the same family culture and Asians are whooping everybody's ass. You know, it used to be that Jews were the ones that were the most prominent in classical music, but they've been nudged aside because now the the family discipline and the devotion to that tradition has now it's it's Asians and above all Chinese, native Chinese and Chinese Americans in this country who have taken up the torch and thank God for them. So, Heather, every Broadway show in the 2020, uh, 2021 season, or maybe it was 21, 22, seemingly was written by a, a black author. Is this kind of tokenistic, well, I have to call it pandering to the African-American community, maybe just a little bit on the nose? I mean, I know, I know the black community isn't a monolith, but do you have any sense of whether... whether uh, you know, the uh, if I hate to keep saying this word, the black community, <laughs> but whether the black community uh, uh, wants all of this hand wringing and self flagellation on their behalf. Well, obviously, uh, I'm setting myself up for cancellation and in, in having even trying to answer that question, uh, because what right do I have to speak for the black community? And there's a, you know, it's not a, if that is not a preposterous idea. Uh, that, um, but on the other hand, I do believe in the enlightenment ideal, which is simply facts and facts are not specific to any given set of gonads or, or melanin content. Um, so I do think that blacks should be able to describe, uh, white sociology, white history. I think that Italians should be able to su study Jap Japanese history. Uh, that there is not a racial or national essentialism that limits knowledge to groups that somehow claim some affinity for it. So, so with the caveat that I am opening myself up to the charge of of some sort of 
it wouldn't be cultural appropriation, but some sort of supremacy. I will say in my experience, it's mixed. Um, there's a sort of a conservative safe harbor in the United States now for conservatives to say, well, really the main drivers of all of this left-wing anti-white, because let's be honest, that's really what's going on. This is a war on whites. I do not shrink from saying it. And we see white culling going on, whether it's in medicine and the distribution of vaccines or in the distribution of of, of, of slots to you know study cancer, to go to medical schools, to go to, to law schools, or I write about the culling of the white docents at the Art Institute of Chicago. So it is an anti-white uh, world and, and moment that we're living in. So conservatives tell themselves that that's really just something that white progressives are promoting. And so if we could get rid of white progressives, everything would be fine. That's true up to a point. I mean, it is no, there's no question that there's a huge, huge impetus uh, behind this cultural self-cancellation, this civilizational suicide that the West is inflicting on itself now from white progressives. On the other hand, it is too pat to say it's not with the assist of a lot of blacks, both in the leadership and sort of in the rank of file. I remember coming off a TV set um, in the probably, it was after my book, The Diversity Delusion. So this might've been 2017, 2018, way before George Floyd hysteria, before post COVID hysteria. And I'd been speaking with Buck Sexton, who at the time had a TV show, and now he's got a radio show in the United States about, uh, among other things, racial preferences in college admissions, waiting for me off the set was a young black man uh, who accosted me, you know, in a friendly manner. But he said, well, you know, I'm one of those preference beneficiaries that you were talking about. And I was talking about the problem of mismatch, which is that when you put people that are not competitively qualified into an academic environment for which they're not competitively qualified, and it's not a, a race issue, it could be a sex issue if, if MIT admits me with very low standardized test scores on math and all my peers who've been admitted on the basis of, of competence rather than gender or sex have near perfect scores on their math, SATs are, are standardized tests, I'm, I'm gonna flounder. And that happens to blacks in a much more tragic way. And he said to me, I was admitted to Harvard. I was probably a, a, a preference beneficiary, but I deserved it. So he was completely unapologetic. You know, none of the, we all worry about, well, isn't this a stigma for blacks? And don't they feel doubt? You know, do I really deserve my position? As a, as a Yale law professor, Stephen Carter wrote in a 1990s book called Reflections of Affirmative Action Baby, he was haunted by this. And he said he did ask himself, am I the best, am I the most qualified person for this law school job or being on this law review panel, or am I the best black that they could find for the job? And they may be the same. In some instances, they may be the same. And in other instances, they're different. And in many instances, today they're different. So my question to you, do blacks feel condescended to? Uh, do they feel that this is a problem? Some do and some don't. And I think a lot of black high school students, having been taught all their lives, that they are the subject of constant white supremacy and oppression, a claim that I just, let me, in case it's not clear by now, is a complete lie. The reality in America today is black privilege, not white privilege. It was white privilege. That was our reality, but that is not the reality today. No college senior, no white, white no black college senior excuse me, no white high school senior that is a, a college applicant. I am making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Let me start over. You can you can retape this one. A black high school student applying to college is never going to put his race down as white, ever, because he knows that being black gives him a massive advantage. And there's a lot of black students who feel that they are entitled to that advantage and it gives them not a single lost night of sleep. 
to know that they are being preferred above more qualified whites and Asians all the time. So Heather, you've said the word that I wanted you to say in this interview, <laughs> and that is and that is black privilege, which I think might be the most world-ending uh, word that you could say <laughs> in the current context. Imagine, imagine just walking into the Guardian or the New York Times or something and just saying, everyone, hold down and just say, black privilege, and just see what happens <laughs> after that. So you need to expand, please. Well, there is not a single mainstream institution in the United States today, not a single law firm, not a single bank, not, an not a single investment bank, not a single newspaper, not a single cable TV station, not a single network news station, not a single university, not a single foundation, not a single big tech company that is not twisting itself into knots to try to find, hire, and promote as many blacks as possible. Uh, there is not a medical school that is not uh, extending massive racial preferences to admit as many remotely qualified black applicants as possible. Again, there is no college graduating senior who is black, who is applying to medical school and is putting his race down as white because he believes that there's white privilege and that being black is a handicap. I am told people come up to me all the time now about white males with perfect scores on their standardized medical admissions test, which is known in the United States as the MCATs. They have near perfect, if not perfect MCAT scores. They are being rejected across the board by medical schools because they are white. If they were black with MCAT scores, perfect MCAT scores, not only would they have a daily delegation from the Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Penn medical schools coming to their doors, offering them foie gras and, you know, I don't know, concubines to get them to apply. <laughs> they would be given the scholarships that far exceed the cost of tuition. You know, they would be given, we will start you a 401k right now, a, a, a retirement fund. I mean, the idea that blacks are being discriminated against is absurd. And we have it on record. You know, the, the medical journals are deciding they're going to publish people based on race. They're, they're deciding who gets hired on the basis of race everywhere. Good luck. You go try being a normal heterosexual, I'm, take out normal, heterosexual white male today and, 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 and apply for a job. You are at the bottom of the list. The, we have been told by the heads of our universities, on the one hand, they say racial preferences don't exist. And if you say racial preferences exist and you're a faculty member here, you will be fired. That's, that's what's happening to Amy Wax. Uh, and, and we're all supposed to get into college and then pretend that we're on a meritocratic basis. And if students say, well, maybe you're here because of racial preferences, they will be a pariah, they will be the object of a campaign of hatred and and uh, elimination and stigma. At the same time, these same college presidents that are saying we don't have racial preferences are telling the Supreme Court that if you don't allow us to have racial preferences, we will absolutely fail in our paramount mission of diversity. In other words, we need to be able to admit black students with wildly lower qualifications uh, in order to fulfill our mission of being able to look out upon our student body and feel the warm glow of noblesse oblige and know that we have crafted this wonderfully diverse uh, uh, class, uh, unlike the white supremacist MAGA hat wearing yahoos in the rest of the country who just cannot stand blacks. What is the, how come we don't talk about the moral hazard here or in creative circles of what this setting of considering your, your immutable characteristics as, as primary, like in my experience, I, I, of, I know people who work in, in, you know, uh, television and whatnot, and the sort of hunger games, atmosphere that that this uh 
that this creates is very is quite ugly the way that everyone they all have to do diversity statements and write about and and often some people write things like oh i came to this country and i couldn't speak the language and then they get to the end and they get rejected and they get rejected because they came from italy or they came from Macedonia, uh, you know, for instance, and they're the wrong kind, they're the wrong one, you know. So, um, oh, and you find people get going, doing this sort of uh, uh, family tree uh, uh, um, excavation where they're trying to find something. Have I got some Egyptian down there somewhere? Have I got something that'll, that'll give me the edge? This is just a, a totally um, uh, disgusting um uh, uh, thing. I actually the, the only thing I'd like you to to to, to finish with, with get your your ideas on this is that I actually saw a, a an Excel spreadsheet uh, that had been done by a producer who thought they were doing really good work and they sent it through to someone I know and the, and and this spreadsheet had uh, possible people for a role they were looking for. Um, uh, it was behind the camera if memory serves, but they had they had characteristics like whether they were um, non-binary, gay, and and basically ethnicity all tabulated. And I found this to be very very chilling to see it to see that all of this tabulated. But this person thought, isn't this great? So I mean, what what, what do you think about all of this, Heather? I think it's the destruction of the human imagination and the human spirit. It is the destruction of what makes us human, which is the belief that we can communicate, we can reach levels of sublime expression that should be able to communicate across history. I mean, I'm still shaken to the core by the Oresteia of Aeschylus, a fifth century Athenian playwright who wrote a trilogy about the evolution of justice away from a tribal system of endless retribution and revenge. This work is, is scares me to the core with the chthonic forces that it releases. That was written in a very different world. And yet art can teach us about what it is to be human. This idea that we have to read works that match the trivialities of our of our gonads and, and melanin is an utter cancellation of what art should be about. I do not have any interest in replicating my own pathetic, narrow identity in the works of art that I consume. I consume works of art in order to get out of my narrow self and to understand what other human beings have experienced, and above all, through the eyes of artists who have been much, have, have had a, a divine gift of expression, of language, or of paint, uh, or of music, that I will never, ever possess. And it is a function, this type of self-cancellation and self-hatred, the weird thing about it, John, is that it is uniquely Western. No other civilization on the earth today is going around canceling itself on the basis of its demographic history. China is not going around saying we can't listen to Chinese opera anymore because it was written by Chinese people. Nobody in Africa is apologizing for black Africans creating Nigerian drum language. They're sure as hell not ap apologizing for their role in the transatlantic slave trade. I will pay reparations when Nigeria and Ghana pay reparations for their role in the, in the slave trade and for when their museums start, start having little puling wall texts next to their fertility gods and, and, and you know statues celebrating their warriors when we hear about the child sacrifice victims and their their genocide against neighboring tribes. No, we never hear that from other cultures. We hear celebration of, of a, accomplishment and achievement. Only the West is involved in this pathetic, groveling, and, and wholly unmerited effort to, to cancel itself. And your spreadsheets are bad enough in the arts, John, the the uh, diversity statement requirements of trying to justify one's work and art in in diversity terms are bad enough 
in the arts and are are completely contradictory to what art should be, but they're also going on in STEM. I have made the argument that it's not clear that Alfred Einstein would be hired today by any physics department uh, if his diversity statement was not sufficiently compelling. He certainly would not get a federal grant from the American science agencies. Now you have cancer researchers that are spending more time trying to explain the demographics of their labs and to explain why they do not have 15% or 13% black oncologists working to them, working for them, than they do explaining cell signaling and nematodes. You, you cannot get a job in a STEM field today, whether it's in an academic setting uh, overwhelmingly or in some big private uh, firms doing cancer research, if you cannot come up with a diversity justification for your work. So we are willing in the West to slow down our scientific progress and say, well, I'm gonna spend half my time mentoring so-called diverse high school students uh, instead of working on trying to unlock the secrets of Alzheimer's disease. Sorry, it is not the comparative advantage of scientists to do so-called social justice, which is a phony term to begin with. It is not why they're there. They are there to do science. They are not there to atone for America's racial history, which I admit was a hypocritical history. America was profoundly hypocritical and it was nauseating in its going around lecturing the rest of the world about its commitment to equality and equal rights and opportunity and freedom when it was on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis oppressing blacks and condescending towards blacks and showing overall heartbreaking, gratuitous cruelty and nastiness to blacks. That was our reality. It should not be whitewashed over as I think some conservative histories do. It was our reality, but it is not our reality today. And, and only the West has this immense, crippling, suicidal guilt complex about our history, every other civilization was worse. It was worse in its treatment of the other. And it is not in the, no other civilization is in the apology business today. Only the West, the Anglosphere, Australia, the Commonwealth, they're all in a, in a in a state of utter emotional psychotic breakdown. Well, Heather, I, I read a couple of years ago about uh, Oxford University and their initiative to decolonize their music curriculum. And one of the proposals was to de-emphasize the use of music notation at the university. Now, this is deeply troubling to me. Uh, we've, we've, you did mention music notation earlier in the show, but I think the reason why uh, Western classical music contains such widely different styles is due to the genius of music notation and the ability to study music scores. Um, you know, I think... And you've touched on this already, you know, the, the 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 difference between a Bach prelude, say, and Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I mean, I mean, there's no way you would have gone from Bach to Stravinsky and beyond without music notation. So have you observed a wider push in music education to de-emphasize music notation in, in favor of, say, graphic scores or, or, or electronic music? Or, you know, is, is, is Oxford an outlier here? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, I just can only... Uh... I just want to assert what you said is so true, Ricky. It's absolutely the case. There is no music tradition that has had the evolution of style. I think that the evolution of style in any field is the drama of human life. To understand what it took to get from Bach to Stravinsky, how many revolutions in feeling and expression that took, or to get from a medieval allegorical romance to the 19th century British novel to get from a world where people thought it perfectly appropriate to talk about humans only in terms of allegories of these very generic characters that had no, no indicia of individuality. And yet century by century, we start developing an interest in individuals as individuals 
I'm not saying that that's preferable necessarily to the medieval epic. It has that has its own strengths as well. But that is an amazing drama. And anybody with the knowledge to be able to trace that arc in any field is very, very fortunate because they will be able to understand before they die and were cut off from human experience what it was to be human. So just great point about the fact that notation allowed for that incredible change because you do not have that same evolution within other music world musics. You just don't. They are much more static. Um, now, the Oxford story, you know, they Oxford kind of denied it. I think it was a Daily Mail story. I tried to confirm it, and I was just sort of in an endless loop. So, But I think it is probably true. I think it was discussed. Uh, I think they, the, the idea is, in, in many places now, we're not going to say that you need to be able to read music in order to be admitted into a music program. And so the thought is, well, once you get in, uh, maybe we'll ask you to read music. Of course, that standard will probably slip. You know, there was a, a ballet school in Leeds that said, well, classical ballet, you know, the great legacy of Russia and 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 France, uh, it's too white European and it depends on all these awful body types and and you know, male and female sexual stereotypes, which is of course part of its great attraction for the the sort of polar opposite of the ballerina and the and the male ballet dancer. So we're not going to accept expect that our art students coming into the school have any exposure to ballet uh, because it's too white. But we'll ask them to learn ballet once they get in. Maybe so. You know, this is the beginning of the end. So I don't know to be a long way around, Ricky, to ask your question of is this taking off? Um, I do know that I write about in the book a, a so-called musicologist who's gotten all sorts of grants, high, high prestige grants, and is an editor of various musicology journals. He has written against the idea of black academics having to give the sources for what they say, that that is just too uptight and white supremacist in academic tradition, uh, and that black people should be able to talk among themselves in their wonderful folk idioms without having to give any kind of uh, scholarly citation forms. So that's sort of a, a, a parallel track to what may be going on. Well, I've, I've, I've had some actual practical experience in this sort of area. Um, you know, I studied music and, and composition and, and uh, at, the, at the college I went to, I've, I've actually seen a lowering of standards, uh, in particular with um, the admission of, of young composers into programs. And I think this, this was down more to... Uh, more to financial reasons because they could bring in, a, a, they could swell the student population if they brought in a lot of aspiring, say, film composers or video game composers who perhaps were were very good at creating electronic music using samples, using computers, using keyboards, but couldn't notate music. Who then, you know, aspired to be, you know, big, big uh, Hollywood film composers who would be let in to uh, to the college to study um, and. What, what was problematic there was is what they were aspiring to was uh, to be film composers and most successful film composers have a very uh, deep history and love of classical music. Uh, you know, I mean, people like Howard Shaw, who is one of my favourite film composers and, and, and others, they, they know that the classical music repertoire, they know how to write for a string section, they know how to write for an orchestra, they know how to conduct, whereas these kids that are coming in, although they may aspire to it, they don't have the tools to, to, uh, to, to do that sort of work. I mean, how much, do you, how much do you think that plays into it, that it's more a financial thing, that, that colleges want, just want a bigger population, let's take in all the composers we can? Well, I don't think that's true in the case of race because they're not going to be the you know, necessarily any more financially able to pay than, than anybody else. But I would, and I would add, obviously, this is so like stereotypic, it's going to make you throw up. But, but I would say that obviously John Williams too, is also deeply, deeply versed in the course, symphonic yeah. tradition. Uh, I, but the, what I'm thinking, listening to you is I feel the same way with art schools of art. Uh, there's simply, we have given up on the idea of craft across the arts, uh, We've lost that. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to me when I go to museums and see just 
in the decorative arts sections the degree of craft that people possessed in order to produce luxury goods for the aristocracy. And I say bravo for the aristocracy for being such good patrons that they gave us a this legacy of furniture creation of of you know inlaid furniture or jewelry creation or the costumes, the dress, the the embroidery, the gorgeousness of of the 18th century court uh, etiquette and and fashion, which is so sexy. The male clothing. Why you guys gave up on it and <laughs> gave us your boring black suits? You're letting the side down for God's sakes. Um, but you know, just what what people could do when there were still crafts unions, it's just incredible. And now the people that are being admitted to art schools, they cannot draw. They, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot claim to be an artist unless you have hand-eye coordination. It is the basis of being able to see, to be an artist is to be able to see the world and you learn how to see by trying to draw it. Um, Ruskin understood this, you know, the, 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 the purpose of his writing and of his art was to, to see the world as it is. And now you have these frauds that do think they're an artist because they do an installation that consists of some used tampons thrown into the middle of a room with a video loop being shown endlessly of some woman screaming and then some twine pulled around. There, there's no craft. You don't master any craft to do that. It's all a joke. And it's the rise of the, the frankly, of the democratic impulse, which is that there is something offensively elitist about people that are good. There are good artists and there are people who have no artistic skill. Sorry, guys. You know, Van Dyke, John, John Sarge, Singer Sargent, these were people who had artistic skills and vision and capacity beyond anything that any of us will ever hope for. And you're not allowed to say that anymore because that's elitist. So the idea is we can all create art. You know, and so you have, I mean, that's one of the themes of the 20th century, obviously, is democracy and mediocrity, that we all are equally skilled and we should all have self-esteem and whatnot. Uh, and so our remaining meritocracy was in STEM that still honored that there are some people who are superior in physics and math. Well, the problem there is, is that the most superior ones are male, uh, the people at the highest end of the spectrum, and that the lowest end of the spectrum are male. Uh, so we can't allow that any longer. And we also have the huge racial gaps. So now we're tearing down even that last bastion that recognized that there are differences in innate abilities and accomplishment because we are in a leveling mood that has been true of us for a long time, but the race angle has made it even more pernicious. And I just want to, as a non sequitur, there was one thing you said earlier that I want to refer back to. You referred to orchestras that are hiring these diversity managers. And I just want to point out that is true, how utterly appalling it was. This all began during the George Floyd mass psychosis. And you had orchestras that had no more audiences. They had all been shut down for these preposterous COVID shutdowns. So they had no ticket income coming in. They were telling their musicians, their orchestral uh, unions, you're going to have to take a pay cut, if not, not be paid for a month, for a year rather. You had the head of the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, Peter Gelb, telling his musicians, his choruses, no pay for you. We are at a financial precipice. If you don't accept a year without salary, there will be no more Metropolitan Opera. It is a life or death matter. Okay, so we, we're, we will believe you, Peter Gelb. At the same time, General Manager Peter Gelb of the Metropolitan Opera hires the Met's first diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, a dean of the Harvard Law School, the Harvard Law School is the most expensive law school in the United States. Its administration is the most highly paid. Marcia Sells from the Harvard Law School was not going to be making a lateral move to the Metropolitan Opera unless she was comparably paid or at a higher salary, which would have been high six figures. Marcia Sells, hired by Peter Gelb at a time of financial crisis, 
knows nothing about opera or classical music. She has no training in either. Her only advantage is she's black. So we have, and this happened across the board, orchestras during the COVID shutdowns hired diversity, equity, inclusion managers who had no classical music background. They majored in marketing, but they were black. I mean, this is how insane it is. And and they somehow found the money to pay these people at the same time they were asking their musicians to accept massive pay cuts at the cost of their professional lives. Academic Peter Bogosian, who has been fighting a similar fight to you, has come to the conclusion that institutions, especially universities, are completely lost. He believes the only way forward is to build new institutions, and I believe he's helping to start a new university. I think it's down in Texas. Do you share his view, or or are you hopeful that academic institutions can can be reformed? Well, that's a very tough question because, again, my my life was I, I aspired to be an academic. I can think of nothing more glorious than to be allowed to sit in the library stacks and read literature. Uh, and and I believe in the humanities, and I am very, very reluctant to pull the plug because universities have been the seat of the humanities for centuries now. But I'm I'm really inclining towards Peter Bergoshin's view. I think that they are the universities now have so jettisoned their academic mission and responsibility, which is to pass on the great tradition with love and humility to teach students why should, they should be down on their knees in gratitude, but for these great works. As Michael Oakeshott said, the purpose of education is to pass on an inheritance from one generation to the next. They're not doing that. Um, so I would say that the problem is, is building alternatives is very, very difficult because the, the universities have a monopoly on credentializing and status, and Americans are status fanatics for getting their kids into high recognition name universities. Um, so it's very tough. And you have a chicken and the egg problem where, uh, you know, the, finding a faculty that is actually still m- immersed in the humanities when that's not being taught for a new institution may be more difficult. On the other hand, you know, maybe you could find that moment where we say we're creating the University of Texas at Austin, which is not sufficiently dedicated to the humanities in my view, but that's the institution you were referring to that Bogosian is part of as a startup. We will be dedicated to the humanities. So go into graduate school because there will be a place for you when you graduate. Because right now, if you're a white male and you're, God forbid, like a philosophy major, classics major, you will not get hired. You won't get hired. End of story. Uh, So so it's a tough thing to figure out the alternative institution. But another reason why it's very hard to think they can be put out of existence, which they should be, I have an article coming out in City Journal, a conservative hedge fund manager, billionaire, really rich, named Ken Griffin, was in Chicago. He moved from Chicago because Chicago was too left-wing for him, too, too anti-crime, too, anti, too, too anti-police, too pro-identity. He just gave $300 million to Harvard, bringing up his lifetime of giving to Harvard to $500 million. Ken Griffin is giving to the very institution that destroys the conservative ideals that he believes in. So if these conservative donors are so idiotic that they keep funneling money into these left-wing institutions, there is no hope. Heather, we have the final question that we ask everyone. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, we'd love to know what you're listening to right now. We've slightly amended the question. We normally ask what you're reading, but we'd love to know what you're listening to right now. <laughs> Musically? Well, to be honest, John, I listen to whatever comes over the radio. I am a, an absolute classical radio fanatic because I'm always on the lookout for new music that I don't know. And when I mean new music, I don't necessarily mean contemporary music. I mean unknown composers from the 18th century who haven't been played to death. So uh, what have I found recently? I, I've, I've sent on, oh, I don't know, some Rossetti or or uh, I always, I don't know, I've heard some wonderful, frankly, Amy Beach, some Alcon. But as I say, I was I was absolutely knocked back by the Brahms piano, first piano concerto recently. So uh, on my 
I guess I got the BBC disc of Rachmaninoff music, which has been some very good stuff, the Isle of the Dead. I had previously, uh, they made a Ray Fon Williams CD. The Sixth Symphony is extraordinarily powerful. It's like a runaway train, which is very different from my usual, not particularly admiring view of early 20th century British music, which can be rather bland and, and cloying as far as I'm concerned. But Rayfon Williams can be absolutely uh, an, a madman uh, hitting you with a propulsive full force that is a little bit scary, frankly. So I've been listening to that too. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Heather, uh, your book is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity uh, Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. I recommend everybody go out and get it. I listen to it uh, on audio. Uh, it also existed on audio. So uh, I had a great time listening to that. Heather, thank you so much for, for being on the show. And we, we would love for you to come back uh, sometime in the future. Oh, I'd love that, Ricky and John, and a great conversation, and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Heather. This has been a, a, a dream come true. Oh, gosh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, big words, big words, I know, but it's true. You were on our hit list from, from the very beginning, so this is this is incredible. We're, we're actually talking to you. Well, great conversation, and um, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.